Well, what's nice, the fact that some of us are here and some of us are on the screen at home, is that we can join together in God's Word. So let's uh, go to Revelation chapter 14 today. Chapter 14. I told you last week that there would be some good news coming. And chapter 14 opens up some good news for us. And I think you will enjoy this too. But here, I will read to you first and we'll have a word of prayer. And then we will take a look at what we see. Revelation 14, it's it's 20 verses long. Then I looked and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. I thought that was kind of fun when I was looking at that. It was the sound, it was the sound of harping of harpists playing on their harps. I said, well, that was fun. And they sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have, been, have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men, as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They were, are blameless. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having the eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God, and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, the second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength, in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest, day or night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandment of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. 
And he who sat on the cloud swung a sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who had power over fire, came out of from the altar, and he called out with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, and said, Put your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vines of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Then the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Okay, you got all that? Draw a picture. It's challenging. You didn't bring your crayons, though, did you? It's always interesting. I had a class once, the book of Hebrews. And our responsibility for every single chapter was to draw a cartoon of that chapter. That's very interesting to do with a book like Hebrews. I think it was there's enough graphic information here in Revelation to do that, but you might find it a bit challenging. It is not impossible it's just challenging. I'm going to emphasize a word here this morning for you. It's a word that is impossible to apply to the capabilities of our God. It is the word impossible. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Jude. Jude verse number 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. I always said, that's my theology in a nutshell. To Him who is able. To Him who is able. Imagine a day, it's recorded in Scripture, where Jesus and Peter and James and John came down from a mountain where Jesus had been transfigured. And when they get down to the bottom of the mountain, there's a bit of a riot going on. Maybe not like Seattle or Portland or something, but there's a riot of sorts going on at the bottom of the mountain. And it says in Mark chapter 9, these things. I'll just read to you the passage. In verse 14, and they came back, when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, saying, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him into the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and he grinds his teeth, and he stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought him the boy, and he saw him. Immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began roaming, rolling around and foaming at his mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to them, or to him, if you can, I just love to pause right there. 
You know there's a look that goes with that, right? If you can. That's what you ask. If you can. If you can. All things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. How many times did somebody say to God the word impossible? I'm not going to ask you personally how many times that might have come in your mind, your thoughts. But I do know in Scripture it happened several times. There, were, there was one instance recorded in, all, in three of the Gospels anyway. Three of the Gospels. Matthew records it in chapter 19. Uh, Mark does as well. Luke does as well. We're going to see those examples. Uh, Mark 10 and Luke 18 that the disciples were asking him about uh, a simple thing that Jesus said. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, it is easier for what? A camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That, that's where you scratch your head a little bit. People have always tried to make the camel or the eye of the needle bigger and bigger, by the way, because they want that camel through there. I think he meant an eye of a needle, and I think he meant a camel. And you could practice that this afternoon and see if it works. But the disciples understood that by one simple word. It's impossible then. They had a pecking order to them spiritually. There are certain people... They're going to get in. No problem whatsoever. And there are some people that have to struggle to get in. And they had this pecking order of who can make it to heaven. And certainly a rich person could. And Jesus said, it's impossible for them. And when he said it that way, they said, well, then we are doomed. Because how can we possibly be saved? If he can't be saved, then how can we be saved? We're not rich. And that was their perspective, and it said it several times. And Jesus answered them and said, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Remember in John 3, Nicodemus had a question about something that was impossible. How could a man be born again? He was thinking physically, wasn't he? In Luke chapter 1, we had a young lady who was told by an angel that she was going to have a son, and his name would be our Savior, Jesus Christ. You remember her conversation? How can this be, since I am a virgin, she said. And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason... The holy child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. You may be thinking right now, what does that have to do with chapter 14 of the book of Revelation? <laughs> what a setup, huh? We just read it together a little bit ago. Did a little bit of Bible study on it, of course. I, I like to prepare well for you. And there are things that prompt my thinking. There was one thing particular that really, really caught me studying for this section today. I was reading in a commentary that I find exceedingly trustworthy. 
sound dispensationally, everything that we would want conservatively with theology and such like that, written by the finest scholars. And verse number 20 of chapter 14 had a simple comment. The verse you see, verse 20 says, And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. And this is what I read. While this distance may be literal and may designate the area of judgment as around the city of Jerusalem, it is, of course, impossible for the blood to reach the height where it would touch the horse's bridle. Whoa! I said, what? Somebody's pretty bold to say, it's impossible when God wrote it in his word. Notice, look again at verse 20. It's not anything like, it is like this or like that. It's not a comparison thing. It's a reality thing. It will. You say, oh, ooh, what's this mean? They said it's impossible. This writer said, it is of course impossible. <laughs> of course. You thought that too, didn't you? That's the way it said. When everybody says, well, of course, it's impossible, they're assuming everybody else thinks the same thing. And when I read that, I said, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. God just said it was going to happen. So, I did the math. How do you do math on this one? This is fun. I went this way. I said, well, I know the distance. It's 200 miles. And I know the depth. I googled it. Of course, you always can Google it and figure it out. A horse's bridle on average is five feet. All right? Maybe you got a tall horse. Five feet. The other factors weren't given to us. How wide is this river, if you want to call it a river? If it's 200 miles long, it's five feet deep, but how, how wide is it? And I, I just threw a number in there because I needed it for the formula, all right? So I went real, 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 real conservative, and I put 10 feet wide. That's probably ridiculous. It's probably a lot wider than that. But I just threw out the word 10 because I figured, well, that, that will work for the formula anyway. So I had to then figure out, all right, if it's 10 feet wide, it's 200 miles long, and it's 5 feet deep, I could at least get the volume and such like that. But I needed to know another factor. How much blood is in a human being? So, of course, I googled that. 5 liters. Is that about right? Oh, good. We're safe. All right, so you go with about five liters of blood in a person, assuming that all of it's squeezed out. All right, and there's other factors I was reminded of this morning, like were the horses killed too? And do their blood add to that? And by the way, you got to put body mass in there too, because there's bodies and such like that. And I said, well, I didn't think about that, but I just went with the amount of blood for this many this distance and this depth and this width, how many people would it take? Three and a half million people. You say, well, that sounds pretty remarkable. But consider that this is the end of the battle of Armageddon and all of the armies of the nation of the world are there, including one nation that sends a hundred million. 
Is it possible? It is possible. I say, whoo, that sounds like a huge thing. A huge thing. And then I read, and of course, this is impossible. I said, I don't think so. Matter of fact, when I'm looking at Revelation chapter 14, I thought of how many things written in chapter 14 and 13 and 12, we would look at it from a world's view and say, that's impossible. That's impossible. But God shows us otherwise. First, set the scene with me for a minute. We are still on the same sign that started in chapter 12. All right? That's important. Because that sign started with a woman, remember? A child and a dragon. And we remember in our study there that the woman represented who? Israel. And the child represented? Jesus Christ. And the dragon represented? Satan. Okay. We got that part. We're saying that's pretty easy. Okay. We saw that he was unsuccessful in messing up God's plan for Israel. He was unsuccessful in destroying Jesus Christ. And he went off angry. Remember at the end of the chapter 12? He went off angry to see how he could disrupt God's people, the Jews. We also read, by the way, the dragon was in a battle. And he lost it. He was fighting in heaven and he was cast down to the earth. Intensely tormenting the earth for a very short time. And we believe in the context we're looking at the tribulation period. In chapter 13, he recruits two human helpers to help him deceive the nations. We identify them as the Antichrist and the false prophet. Both are called beast in the sign as we went through chapter 13. Both of them are as bad as they can be. Both of them are determined to get the whole world deceived and to worship the Antichrist. And they threaten those who do not do that, because if you do not get the mark of the beast, your refusal is a death penalty. They are quite capable of taking this whole world on a course that we might find very challenging to believe in our day right now, if it were not written in God's word. What kind of power might it be that even believers during the tribulation period will become martyrs just because they know Jesus? What kind of power is it that they can take all these things on this earth and bring them to subjection to their own power through deception? There have been times on our planet, we know, when things seem to have been as worse as they can get. I won't review history with you. There's a lot of illustrations we might bring up. But I do know what Scripture says is that the tribulation will be the absolute worst time this world will ever see. That's according to the Bible. Imagine the people living through that, dealing with the Antichrist, and thinking... It is impossible to defeat him. Imagine people seeing the deception of the false prophet in that time and saying it's impossible to get away from him. 
imagine that there will not be a simple life like you and I might enjoy. A simple life of a quiet life, a, a go-to-work kind of life, a go-to-church kind of life, a secure life for a believer. Put the word impossible next to that during the tribulation period. Because you cannot buy and you cannot sell without the mark of the beast. It is impossible. Now, chapter number 14. With all of that said, and now you're absolutely depressed, but thankful you won't be here. Chapter 14 continues the sign. This sign carries on all the way through chapter, up to chapter 15. The same sign. And if I gave it a sermon title, it would go like this. Six angels, one lamb, and 144,000 proofs that God is still in control. Start with verse number one. We're just going to scan through these. I'll give you a chance to study more on your own. Then, verse number one starts. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version, and I realize that there are different translations, and you may have different words from time to time, but I read the word. Then, because the sign continues, I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And I know some of your translations there, especially if you have the King James, you read a lamb. Now there's variants in the Greek text, the manuscripts and things like that. I like to say the lamb on purpose because what we're seeing in the last chapter was a fake one. The Antichrist in chapter 13 verse 11 was masquerading like a lamb, remember? So I like to say this is the lamb, not a lamb. This is the contrast. This is... Matter of fact, this is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Because with him was 144,000 having, notice, his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Now, if you need a proof passage that Jesus Christ is God, this is a good one. I'll show you why. Because these are the same ones identified in chapter 7. The 144,000. With names on their head and on their, uh, as it says, their names on the forehead. And in chapter 7 it said, they were sealed with the seal of the living God. And now we hear that the seal of the living God is the name of the Lamb. Put it together. Who is the Lamb? He's God. He is God. His name and his father's name has sealed them. And I hear a voice from heaven, verse 2 says, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. What are they doing? They're singing. <laughs> They're singing. They have been living through the worst time this earth has ever seen. And what are they doing? They're singing. They are representatives of the Lord. They have been hated violently 
by the dragon, and they overcame the impossible. They are singing. Verse 4. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among the men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Here's their resume. It's quite a contrast to the depravity of the tribulation period. A contrast perfectly in every way. They are not defiled. They are chaste. They follow the Lamb relentlessly wherever He goes. They are purchased by the Lord. They are completely honest. And they are blameless. Imagine that for a minute. The dragon who opposed them, the Antichrist who threatened them, the false prophet who sought to deceive them, and even the complete sinfulness of the tribulation. Is it possible for somebody to go through that and come out godly? Yes. Yes. 144,000 proofs of it. Right there in your hands. It's not impossible. Folks, our day is pretty ugly too. Don't be quick to say it is impossible to live godly in our day. Don't go down that road. It is not impossible. Follow the Lamb relentlessly. Follow Him. All right, pastoral thought. Move on. Starting in verse 6 all the way through verse number 20. We have a series of angels appearing with incredible messages. And again, I can't go through every piece and part, but let's look at what we see. First angel shows up in verse 6 and 7. I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having the eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God, give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. I really like this set of verses right here. The essence of the gospel right in these words. And everyone will hear it. There are some who say, well, the rapture can't occur until everybody hears the gospel. Actually, it's during the tribulation period. And it will happen. Because you just saw it right there, right? It goes to every tribe and nation and people and tongue. It's the eternal gospel is given to them. And the essence of it is one, fear God. How many times are we told to do that in Scripture? Oh, you don't know the number, but there's a lot, isn't there? There's a lot to that. There's a lot to that. And I wish I had a lot of time to do it. Give Him glory. Yes. Worship Him. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to camp on this for a long time. It's a message our world needs right now, too. It needs it right now. See, the point of this message was that judgment was coming. Judgment was coming. And there was additional angels that came in and responded to that. The second angel shows up in verse number 8. He's actually just going to give us a preview of chapter 18. He says, another angel, a second one followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. 
she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. That's chapter 18. We will be there soon. A third angel chimed in right in the middle of all that. And that in verse 9, the third angel following them says with a loud voice, If anyone worship the beast in his image and receives a mark of his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Verse 10 and 11 are frightful verses. Frightful verses. Terrible, terrible message here. Eternal doom to those who take the mark of the beast. Eternal doom. You say... Oh, I've got to be careful. If you're here today, folks, and you're a member of the church of Jesus Christ, you belong to him, you won't be here for that. That's not your fear, right? Use your UPS symbols or your UPC symbols, right? It's not going to be the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast comes after the tribulation starts. You're not likely to catch it, all right? Some people are fearful. What if that is? I got a credit card. You know, all this fear we have. This is not for us. This is for them. But the doom is eternal. They worship the beast, it says. That's why they took the mark. Right? You can't take a mark unless the beast is here. They were deceived by him. Yet in that they made a choice, do you not know? The choice was, worship the beast or die. And guess what they did? They chose to worship the beast. A very bad choice, because as graphic as this passage is, it's full of God's wrath. He pours out every measure right here in this picture. There's torment with fire and brimstone, and the word forever is on the page. Day and night. How long is that? In description terms, it just goes on and on. And on. And it says in verse 11, and their torment goes up forever and ever, and there is no rest. There's terrible things that scripture tells us about, and the Lord is not shy about saying it, but there is a thing called the lake of fire. And it is a real place, and those who go there will be there forever. Does that shake you to the core? Because you might know some people who do not know the Lord. This is their outcome, folks, if they do not turn to Christ. It's frightful. This is highlighted in this judgment. Where's the hope in that? You said, Pastor, you said good news today. We read the whole world will be deceived. That's terrible. The whole world would follow the beast. That's terrible. The whole world would take his mark. That's terrible. The whole world will suffer this judgment. That's terrible. Except, we started with 144,000 that didn't. They survived. And it brings us to verse number 14, which is, again, not randomly inserted. I mean, verse 12. Not randomly inserted here. Here is a perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Let me just say simply, God is still God. God is still God. As you see everything unraveling in this chapter, God is still God. 
In chapter 13, he said it the same way in verse number 10. We call it the doctrine of perseverance. Understand this. Christian doctrine is not something man does. It's what God does. Sometimes we turn that around too often. We talk about the doctrine of man more than we talk about the doctrine of Christ. The reality is, and I think you know this, we cannot survive one minute without God's work in our life. The very fact that we live and move and have our being is because there is a God who loves you enough to let you live. That might be incredible. But with Him, we can persevere. You may have the word patience in front of you right now, in verse 12. The word in Greek is hupomone, which means to abide under, to continue, to go on, to go on, to go on. And I think that this might be a very comforting doctrine for a tribulational saint. You know, there, we all have our significant doctrines, I think. If you ask a, a reformer back in the 1500s, what is the dearest doctrine to you? They would have said, the just shall live by faith. And they loved it. And then if you go to maybe our day and age, I, I hope this is true, but we hold to the doctrine of eschatology, especially the rapture. That's very dear to us. We look forward to that, don't we? One person did. Okay. Woo. Yes, it's precious to us. We say, yes, I love that verse. What's precious to a tribulational saint? You missed the rapture. I don't think that's going to encourage a single heart. But what might encourage them? God will get us through this. God will get us through this. Endure. That doctrine we call preservation. I think it's always best viewed from the end of the journey, by the way. We measure it according to today, and we don't see the value of it. But God speaks of His promises to save and to secure to the end. And when we get to the end and look back, we can say, Ooh, that is true. Because we've experienced it too. The fact is that what we read in Scripture is this. He will never lose any of His own. Isn't that great news? He will never lose any of his own. I found two quotes when I was digging through on this verse. One of them was by a man named Francis Roberts who said, Perseverance is the rope that ties the soul to the doorpost of heaven. So that sounds cool. Another one by John Charles Ryle. No soldier of Christ are ever lost, missing, or left dead on the battlefield. Look at that hope for a minute. That was the hope for those who follow the Lamb. And what it says in verse 13 is that, And I heard the voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. That's quite the contrast to the previous verses, where there is no rest. That's a beautiful contrast, folks in the midst of all that ugly world that they're living in, they persevere by the Lord, by His strength, 
They walk relentlessly with their lamb. And so a bunch of other angels appear. And I believe, as you start verse 14, Jesus Christ is in this scene too. I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And he was told by an angel to, verse 15, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap is come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now, in this context, we're dealing with judgment. There are those who take verse 15 to represent the rapture. They say, oh, there it is, it's the rapture. It's halfway through the tribulation, so it's a mid-tribulation. No, it's judgment. The whole context is all on judgment here. He's talking about judgment. And does the Lord judge? Yes, he does. See, they want to take that out of his hand, too. He judges. And so, he's putting out his sickle to reap the earth. And another angel in verse 17 puts out a sickle as well. And a third one puts it out in verse number 18. And he's working on grape clusters. And we have all these angels swinging their sickles on the earth and, and gathering up those for judgment. Notice the end of verse 19. He threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city. Do you find encouragement in that? It's not. It's a judgment passage. And blood came up from the wine press up to the horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. Is that impossible? No. You see, this is judgment. There are those who think that Jesus is all mercy and never one who would judge the world. He is 100% merciful, and he is 100% righteous, and he is 100% just, and he is 100% God. They say, no, he won't judge the world. They assume that he's soft on sin. They assume that he blinks at what they're doing. They assume, like Peter wrote in Second Peter 3, Verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? He's not going to judge. For every since the Father fell asleep, everything continues just as it was from the beginning. And while they are maintaining this, it escapes their notice that by word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water and through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded by water. Who did that? God did. And by his word... The present heavens and the earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. He will do it. He will do it. For a believer, there's one ounce of comfort right there for us, and that is, he always keeps his word. He always keeps his word. Because if he didn't keep this word, how can you be sure he'll keep his promises to you? Don't you want him to keep all of his promises? Yes, we do. This is one of them. He promised to do it. There's several more chapters to come to add to our understanding of these things. But let's not say impossible when we read these passages. This is what I gleaned from the passage and what I'm bringing to you 
this morning, God is able. God is able. It will be necessary in the middle of the tribulation for all of heaven to proclaim it. That the world will begin to think that they're running the place. And here this chapter pops up, and who's running the place? He is. I'm sure that probably in our day right now today, it's easy for the mentality to start creeping in that we as believers are in a pickle. I, I, I just simply tell you, our God is able. Our God is able. Do you trust Him? Do you trust Him? He is sovereign. Do you know that? He is sovereign. And we as believers ought to know it. And we ought to live it. And we ought to proclaim it in our world today. He is the God who keeps us, right? He is the God who will bring us through, right? He is the God who keeps His promises. And every one of them is true. Everyone. Spurgeon says, when you, get, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is a pillow upon which you can lay your head. I like that. I like that. Please do not use the word impossible in reference to God. Like I started with. Now to him who is able. To do what? To keep you from stumbling. What else? And to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless. Can you believe it? Don't put the word impossible next to that. Because he will. And you will stand there, it says, in his glory, blameless with great joy. Let me finish it. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen is exactly the word. Heavenly Father, what an incredible passage before us today. I know we kind of skimmed through it this way. But in that we have seen over and over and over and over again your hand at work in the midst of a very wicked world. And we love to stop and see your power. We love the display of your glory. We love to see your dominion and your authority. And I thank you for the glimpse today. Because it encourages our hearts as believers. Though we will not be experiencing that tribulation period. Yet we live in a wicked world too. And we need a reminder today that you are still God. And I thank you, Lord, for it. What an encouragement for us. May it drive us on this week as we just muse upon those beautiful things. Our God is still God. Always will be. What a privilege it is to know you. We thank you for this today. In Jesus' name, amen.